Hey there, welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we can love the hell out of this world in the small ways that add up over time and across relationships to really make change that allows a little bit more courage and a little bit more love into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Sean, one of the hosts of the podcast, and today I am joined by two amazing members of our community, and we're going to be in conversation today. We've had these services that are all on this topic of God, a concept, and we thought we would wrap that up, bringing two of the people that kind of anchored some of the services in the last few weeks into conversation. So a few weeks ago, we had Scott Denning, who I'll ask to introduce himself in a minute, and he was talking about cosmology and the story that science and the Big Bang can that tells us about the world and then how we live in response to that. And then last week, Becky Wagner here was speaking about earth-based spirituality and God being found in that natural world and the rhythms of life. So I'm here with Scott and Becky, and I'll have them introduce themselves a little bit, and then we'll dive into some conversation. Thanks for being here, both of you. Thanks for having me. I'm Scott Denny. I've been uh, part of this congregation for 35 years, and professionally, I'm a, a scientist at CSU. I study carbon and how it cycles through the earth. And I'm Becky Wagner. I've been a part of this congregation since 2013. And I'm officially retired, although busier than I'd like to be. And I've been practicing paganism or earth-based spirituality for about 30 years now. I thought we might start the conversation going back in time a little bit more than 30 years for both of you. Thinking about your experiences with nature growing up, because both of your spiritualities and the awe and wonder you have in, about this world seems to be so connected to the natural world. And I was curious if that experience of awe, that connection was there as a child or something that came to you later on in life. I was, I've always been connected to the earth. I have memories of following my grandmother around in her garden, helping her plant bulbs. And there was a cherry tree outside of her door, climbing the cherry tree and picking cherries. And I actually fell out of it as a three-year-old, I suppose. But she also had bleeding hearts lining her driveway. And I remember that vividly. <laughs> I came to earth-based spirituality in lieu of other kinds of spirituality. And that's that's where it really resonated with me. I guess I have a similar story. I grew up as a little kid living out in the country in the woods and playing in the in nature and being struck by the beauty of the natural world, by the cycles of the seasons, by the, you know, plants and animals and all, all that. And I didn't really connect it to spirituality, though, until maybe I was older. I was very interested in science as a little kid, and studied science, and that sort of deepened my appreciation of nature and where we come from and how far part of nature. But it wasn't until I was an adult that I really felt that I needed spiritual help, that I had sort of adult problems that people turn to religion for sustenance, for strength. And that's when it 
maybe deepened into something a little more spiritual rather than just an appreciation of how beautiful the world is. Now, Becky, you were just saying before we started recording that you were just in a conversation with someone that had a lot of questions about earth-based spirituality. And I imagine a lot of people who haven't had experience of earth-based spirituality probably don't have a lot of familiarity with it. But I wondered if you might take us like inside the practices, you know, your experience of earth-based spirituality, there are so many, giving us kind of that inside view. Well, I like to think of it as an umbrella, and under the umbrella are many different paths. Anything outside of the mainstream religion can be under this umbrella. And there's so many different ways of walking an earth-based spiritual path, from native, native thinking to European ways of thinking, or Celtic ways of thinking, or and all of them have different ways of walking. And so once you decide that's what you want to do, you really have to kind of do your own research and your own work and find what feels best for you. For me, it was going into a, a library. I was very lucky. I went into a library of some pagan friends of mine and they had books lining from ceiling to floor and I was able to just be in reading and I was able to choose never stopped reading felt resonated with me and i think that's the person i was visiting with this morning i recommended to her that she she go to a book that is written by you people and that i taught a class on before but it's a really good introduction to earth-based spirituality it's by joyce and Robert higgins and we, we may have it in the, in the library here i'm sure but it's a good place to start. Place to start. For you, what are what are the kind of practices, appreciations, ceremonies that that are part of your daily, weekly, yearly practice? Well, monthly, <laughs> you can do moon practices. Pay attention. The cycles of the moon. Last night's moon was mm -hmm. amazing, by the way. And then about every six weeks, there's a holiday around what's known as the wheel of the year. And the next one coming up is autumnal equinox in September. And it's in pagan thought, it's the second harvest holiday. And we observe it. Equinox are close to equinox and it's a balance holiday. And and we formally observe it, but we also try to tie it in spiritually in some way. So I do that religiously <laughs> around the wheel of the year. And then I think the other piece for me is just a mindfulness of being being aware on a daily basis of what's happening around me. And I'm... Um, I'm an avid gardener, and so when I'm in the garden, I'm paying attention to what's going on with, with the plants and trying to decide what's a weed and what's a flower. And I, I have the power to make that decision. Yeah. And last night's moon was just amazing. It was, it was out in the middle of a field in a valley and watching the moon come over the, the ridge was magical 
and it was so big. And yes, and, and and that's a very, for me, that's a very magical, a very spiritual experience, just because I could be there and absorb it. And it's physical, physical experience, but it's also a very spiritual experience for me as well. Well, I, I'm looking at Scott right now, and your watch has a moon on it. And I know that you are often gazing up. Yeah. So I like the word mindfulness. I also try to be mindful of the world which we live, people and animals and plants we share the world with. I think there's this kind of context, right? So so mindful of context rather than just be mindful of what's on my to-do list and why I didn't get that reporting or whatever mindful there's a, a larger context in our lives and our reality so yeah i mean I, I look at the sky i feel like the the changing sky is just incredibly powerful as reminding me of the context of who i am and where i where i fit so yes the moon and also sometimes the sunrise and sunset just just sort of feeling the earth turn under me, seeing the shadow of the earth rise through the sky and the sunset and the different colors that appear, the planets appear and the stars appear. And you get this sense that we are part of something much, much bigger than ourselves. This gives me sort of a sense of humility, but also a sense of glory, being part of, of something truly magnificent that was here long before me will be here long after me from which i have heard into which i will pass it's a a beautiful sense of of contact and i think looking at the sky is important to me as a practice in a way but it's not just the sky right it, it's looking around it's noticing the trees and the changing seasons the you know becky mentioned gardening and, and it's interesting, right? So we're like reverent about, about the earth, but like, oh, don't we pluck it out? We have these blister beetles that are eating our flowers in, in our garden. And yes, they are magnificent creatures of creation. I hate them. <laughs> I, I want to pick them off and stomp on them. They are they are eating my, my good plants. So, so, I mean, I guess we take uh, the context into which we're born with, with warts and all. There's It's not just all beauty and, and serenity. Sometimes it's those blister beetles eating my, my flowers. And they have a place in the universe. They have a place in the universe and also under my foot. <laughs> and I think that's, that's, where, that's where I'm really appreciative and conscious power that I as a human being mm -hmm. to be able to make those kinds of decisions. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, when I was speaking on Sunday, I was, I was saying to folks that my, my hunch is that this, what we're doing is remembering because I think, I think that we are in fact much more powerful than we remember ourselves to be. Would you say more about that? Yeah, I think, first of all, one of the basic beliefs of the, paganism that I that I learned and was reading about is that we create reality with our thoughts. And I really, truly 
believe that. I also think that we 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 can do that with the choices that we make and how we respond to experiences that we have in our life, such as your beetle. And and so the attitude that we go into life with makes a difference in our interactions with people. So if I if I'm going into life with an attitude that's not upbeat, let's say, or if I'm having kind of a down day, it's going to influence my day. Or if I'm if I can somehow go into the day on a higher note, it makes a difference on how what kind of a day I'm going to have. I think that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about we as creators. I think we really do have the power to create what kind of a day we have and how much of an influence that we have the people around us. And in fact, on our universe, mm-hmm. I really do. And perhaps even, and I don't know for sure, but I suspect that eons ago, beyond what we remember, that we had a, we had a say in this earth that we live on. Mm-hmm. We had a say in how it looks and how it functions and the fact plants can make photosynthesis. I don't know for sure, but I suspect. <laughs> I suspect that we had that power as human. It's one of the things that I really wish I could remember. <laughs> but I don't. That's that's where I'm in. In my unknowing. Thinking about you know, just that, that creation that we can bring in, it makes me think of the you know, the concepts or the worldviews that we hold that inform how we experience the world and how both like the explorations of science and also just practice give us a certain like a lens that we look at the world through, you know, because we can't take in everything that we experience. You know, I know neuroscientists are saying that, you know, the amount that we're conscious of in terms of sensory perceptions is so small compared to the amount of input that our bodies are experiencing and even you know how much how many spectrums of light we can't even see and that like the really ugly moths that i think are ugly are actually really beautiful in the ultraviolet spectrum. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> just i can't see them and appreciate them and so like the distinction between a butterfly and a moth is like less important if you can see the beauty of i'm sure that's there's some different science there too but but just that sense of like the concepts that we bring those worldviews can really inform yeah. Not only our practice, but how we're living our lives. And I was listening to this this physicist talk about how, you know, if we you, know, you take a ball and you throw it up and you catch it, you know, in that time of the one second up, one second down, the Earth has moved like eighty miles, maybe. Now it doesn't really feel like it. It doesn't look like the ball has moved, but like we've all moved. But what does it mean to? you know, to take those facts about existence and then incorporate them into our worldview so that we can think about this reality that we're like hurtling through space, that we are part of a chain of ancestors that bring us, that there's memory and, and, and resource and, and lessons for us to uncover. Those worldviews really can shift how we experience the everyday, even as it can feel as mundane as just throwing a ball and catching it. Remembering who we are that way, remembering context in nature, in the world itself, 
can help us maybe with compassion because everybody shares this. You threw off the ball and fell down and you moved 80 miles, but so did everybody else, right? right? We, we, we're all sort of sharing this, this context, this natural context together. And, and so, so said the word humility and I've said the word compassion, a word that comes to me from what Becky was describing is agency, that we have agency in the world, that we are not just passive writers in, in this in this world, we actually make choices. We right. have intention. We act in ways that can harm and can help. And sometimes we don't know whether it's harm or not. And being aware of that agency, I think, is is part of who we are as well. We we are self aware. We are I- interacting with people all the time. We're interacting with with other creatures in the world, and and, and so something Becky said about it, remembering in our deep ancestry about having a lot of agency that continues now, right? We, as people have heard, we humans make choices dramatically affect the functioning of ecosystems, the atmosphere, the the physical world. Those are those are moral choices. Those are are actually deeply moral decisions that we make that affect not only the people around us but but the larger reality. And I think that there's a it's mysterious, it's hard to sort of trace the try to ask this in church that how does understanding who we are, what we are, help inform us to make good choices how to be in the world. It's hard. Right. How does in the service that that you led, you you told the story of the the big bang of like the, the great whoosh, whoosh as you would call it, you know, that <laughs> That moment when, you know, the, the compression of what was expanded into all that is and created all of the stuff that formed the nebulas and the stars and the planets and the meteors and all the things. And us. And us, right. You know, uh, you know, eventually, you know, we're looking right now at the moon and on Mars to find the water. And if there's water, there's probably some forms of life in some ways. All of that was created in this way. So the question you're asking is how does knowing that story affect how we, right. how does knowing that we are, you know, that we are created of stardust, that we are a product of billions of years of geological, biological, chemical processes, how does it affect how I should live my days, right? For me, it makes a huge difference because it is who I am. You know, I have to, and that's one of those things that I have to re, I keep remembering that I am, in fact, start. Yeah. I am very much attached to and part of the earth. And so what I do to the earth, I am, in fact, doing to myself. And that, you know, it makes a huge difference in the choices that I make. And it, it becomes personal. Yeah. It becomes more than just something I'm doing to something. It becomes, a per, it becomes personal, it becomes Okay, <laughs> this this is a part of me. This is and then when and when I add spirituality in there, it really becomes a part of who I am because it's becoming even more important. 
becomes physical and becomes emotional and becomes, it, it just really becomes wrapped up in, in who I am. So more of the whole. I don't even really know the words for this, but there's a, a concept I've heard here in church about circles of belonging. So the sort of smallest level it's me, maybe I have self-interest, I have survival instinct, I try to take care of myself, I try not to get hurt. I draw the circle a little bigger and it's maybe my family. I protect my kids, I protect my spouse, I try to make sure that we're okay. There's our community, there's our country, there's, there's the human family. And as those circles get bigger, we are asked to care about larger and larger groups. We're asked to sort of define self-interest in a broader way. And I think what he and I are both talking about is drawing these circles radically bigger yet, mm. beyond even the human family to include nature writ large, that can be plants and animals, or including the oceans and the atmosphere and the soil, or the whole cosmos, right? When we draw these circles at their, at their largest, we have a duty of care that is far beyond the, the narrow definitions clan or tribe have historically informed religious practice. Yeah, you know, I think I think what I'm what I'm suggesting is that we have we have an active part in that creative process. Here, here. So, so if in fact at, at some point back in history we had an active part in creating the the earth that we now inhabit, perhaps we had an active part in creating our solar system. Perhaps we had an active part in creating our you. I mean, I don't know, but I think those possibilities are out there. I think as creative people, when I'm thinking big, I'm thinking that. And I'm also thinking that the driving force of the flow of life is love, is the love energy. When I was in college, I wrote an essay, and it, it wasn't fulfilled assignment or anything, and the teacher was totally disgusted with me, yeah. <laughs> and I had to rewrite the essay, but the essay essentially was, only love can save the world, and I think what I was getting at is that love has created this universe, this, this being that I am, this world that I live on. And so when I'm when I'm talking about being creators, I'm I'm talking about using that flow of love in our lives and encompassing everything, everything about it. I want to jump in with two things. The first thing is this idea of us being creators. Have either of you seen like wild carrots before? You mean in real life? Yeah. Yeah. Or like I mean, when you look at a wild carrot, the amount that you could eat in it is so... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's very fibrous and, like, you wouldn't really want to eat it. And yet, carrots are one of my favorite vegetables. And that evolution, right, was a human creation. Was generations, farmers... All, all crops. Yeah, exactly. Emerged that way. Yeah, this, like, cultivation, this passing down of memories, a sharing of seeds... Right. The intentional practices of learning in relationship with the plants has 
and the natural world, like the, where you're planting, you know, what the best seasons are, you know, and I look at my dog, I mean, my dog was a wolf, but like does not act like one, you know, and like, how did that happen? Right. That was again, a human process of creating, of being in a relationship with another being. Talk and, love. Right. Talk about love and probably, you know, a special type of love that cheap what the function of that was over time you know dolly's not very good at hunting and, <laughs> and not very good at protecting but you know but she loves but she does love me and that is an important function but just that idea of like sometimes we think of like the human creative impulse as as the only way that it has formed the world maybe has been sometimes the idea to just to remember how much actually we can be in this symbiotic relationship with this world and create it and work with it I would. So I, I keep trying to draw these circles bigger. If we think of, of love as in substance with creation and with mm -hmm. agency in this way, there are these kind of underlying things from which we emerge through the process of love. We could, you've named selection and you've named evolution there. It goes beyond through biology to the underlying chemistry to the underlying physics, the, these kind of, you know, this is like an enlightenment perspective of clockmaker of the universe where, where there are these kind of principles or rules which govern the way particles join or the way chemicals combine to become more complex things leads all the way to us. And maybe in this broad sense, those things are love. Those things are the creative impulse permeate reality in, in a way. Mm. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, that's where I, where I'm going with, with this remembering, because I think it's quite possible that we have the capacity to have been the creators mm. in some way. This is a place I've never gone. But that's interesting. You go there. Yeah, I, I should go there. <laughs> I absolutely think that 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 scientists, and particularly physicists, have gone there and they've come to a place where they they don't have any answers to be able to go further. Yeah. For example, why why matter can talk without touching? You know, why can they communicate over you know vast distances? Yeah, vast distances. But why does that happen? Yeah. So, you know, there are things that we don't understand, right? So you're using the word we in the way that I suggested. You're using, you're using the word we to be much more than individual Becky and individuals. You're exactly. using the word we in a really cognitive way. I am. I yeah. am. And it's very interesting to find myself in this position because I'm not a scientist at all. If I had my life to live over again, I would be a scientist. Never too late. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. <laughs> but, you know, I can think cosmically. Mm. And see, I think that's where we as spiritual beings can go. And we can, we can, we can take our possibilities, our possibilities in who we are as spiritual beings, as beings, our ability to love, mm. to love and to really love and extend it out. Well, I think that's one thing that I'm, as I'm sitting listening to this conversation, which I love, 
I hear both of you in different ways finding a way in to an experience of the world that dissolves all of those distinctions that you were talking about, Scott, so that you can draw the circle as wide as you can. Yes. Through story, through practice, through wonder, through humility, through understanding and, you know, unveiling the world through scientific discovery or personal practice and, you know, personal scientific exploring and this cosmological world sounds like is you found a way in to an experience that helps you to figure out that living from that place in which there isn't those divisions. Because I think a lot of people can can theoretically get access to, okay, we're all one human race. We're all on this one planet. Our fates are tied up together somewhere. We can't all get there. But, you know, I think theoretically a lot of us can get there. But then getting access to a lived experience, like a visceral experience that says, that's not just a, that is the reality of existence. And that should impact how I live and motivate me to make choices that are harder choices because they're fitting people that I don't see. They're benefiting me, but it's the me across the world I've never met. And that me is, you know, a species or a human or something else like that needs kind of a deep experience to get. I, I completely agree. I I'm almost wonder whether we need one more of these services yeah. in this series that gets at precisely what you've just named, which is this visceral, overpowering, emotional experience of uh, the divine. So numinous experience, transcendent experience, some not in the intellectual realm, but really in the heart that changes us. I, I feel like I didn't get to talk about that in the, in the sermon that you asked me to, to develop, but I think that's sort of, what would you say? Well, I, I am agreeing with you, Sean, that many people who've thought about God have, have done so at an intellectual level, at, at a scholarly level, we develop, you know, books and, and, and systematic theology of thoughts yeah. and theology over centuries. And in some sense, those contrast with, you know, charismatic, numinous, direct experience, the kind of thing that makes your jaw drop, that makes you, you know, it, it's this direct experience that, that that empowers us to learn from those those intellectual things and actually changes our our intention and our behavior. I hear both like the, the mystical experience and also those experiences of fear and trembling too. Mm -hmm. The overpowered uh, the powerfulness of the divine that people will experience or the great magnitude. I think there's something to be said for the awareness, what I can only call the creative field. And that's the, that's this awareness that what we do impacts the greater consciousness out there. So yes, it doesn't impact not only you, but it impacts your community. It impacts people across, you know, across the world. It has an impact on the reality that all of us live. The, your thoughts, what what actions you do, it it does impact it because we're all we're all part of this 
reality. It, it, if I wouldn't have experienced it, I wouldn't be able to sit here and say it. But I really think that, that that's a part of the consciousness that is, that is attached to this feeling, this personal experience with, I hesitate to use words like God, goddess, source. Source. So, so, so we started this conversation with Sean asking Becky about practice. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe trying to make a three, dis, three, three categories. So there's, there's practice, there's theory, which is like all this scholarly work that goes on over many generations. And then there's, there's a sort of direct charismatic experience of the divine. And they, 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 they interact, they fit together like puzzle pieces yeah. when we talk spirituality. So Becky has monthly lunar practice that involves a set of activities to which she commits, regardless of what's on her to-do list. It's the full moon. I'm standing in this field. I'm going to watch it come over the ridge. It's great. Doesn't guarantee that you're going to have one of the life-changing experiences. By repeating that practice in a, in a regular way, and committing to it, you sort of increase the chances of having those those experiences. Mm-hmm. For me, I go to a mountaintop in the thin air where, you know, the connections to my mundane reality are thin. There's not enough air for me to remember my to-do list. And then it gets dark and there's the galaxy spinning around me. This is my practice. And my practice increases my access to, to those transcendent moments, whether it happens on Tuesday or a year from Saturday, who knows? It does not always, it doesn't always work, right? That's kind of part of, of spiritual practice is that sometimes it's a, it's, you know, other things butt into your head, but, but practice, experience and theory, and they, they sort of interact. I should add, I should add that, that mindful is biggie for me. And I try to do that on a daily basis just to remind myself of who I am. Yeah. And sometimes I'll listen to affirmation. Then I just, you know, I have a lot of past stuff that I have to let go of. And so, you know, I still work at that. So affirmation. Some daily practice too. Yeah. And I sometimes fail to do it. And I sometimes don't do it right. Yeah. But you keep at it. But, it, but, and that's why it's called a practice. <laughs> but, you know, it does help. It does help to keep me centered. You know, even if I don't do it, but I, you know, they're in the back of my mind. And I also think the other thing that helps me is to have conversations like this. Yeah. Where, where we're talking about possibilities. We're talking about questions. And how often do you engage a conversation with people? about these kinds of conversations, you know? And I think that's one of the richest things that I've gained from the internship that I've been in, is to be able to have these on a regular basis. And as a minister, and maybe you have more frequently than, than those of us who are doing other things. Isha. Lucky Isha. Yeah, I... I love these sorts of conversations. And, and what I particularly love is to hear the diverse ways that people are finding the practices that unlock these experiences for themselves. Because, you know, one of the things I love about the Unitarian Universalist faith is we have this conception that there is this 
this transcendent mystery and wonder that's at the heart of our experience. But the way we get access to that, the doors or the windows that help us move towards it to experience it are going to be are going to be as unique as the unique humans that are in this world. And because for some people, you know, I have a colleague who I was talking to her once about our tradition. She's Puerto Rican, grew up in New York City, and she talked about the Unitarian Universalist predilection to go to nature for these sorts of transcendent mystical experiences was just so disconnected from her experience and how being in urban environments and feeling the the beat and the pulse of those communities and the relationships embedded and the smells and the communities gathered in rhythm, like all of that was that she found access to this. Thing. Mm-hmm. Which is both to say that there is this that is beyond the, well, beyond the everyday, embedded in the everyday, but it takes some practice or experience as you greatly or so eloquently distinguished to get access into it. Sometimes we need the theory that, you know, that a scientific, you know, fact of revelatory of like, oh, wow, that stardust is you. Yeah. Wow. I need that fact to form. Sometimes I need the practice, my daily meditation or prayer to help carve out that space inside myself so I can experience this world or to remember what's important. Sometimes I need to be hit over the head with an experience and have no ability to say yes or no. Or sometimes I can, you know, I'm ready and open so that I can have an experience I wouldn't if I wasn't prepared for it. And all of those things do contribute to that capacity to kind of, to not, to unveil, say, that, that deeper parts of the reality. I think that's one of the amazing things that I love about us as humans is our capacity to imagine. And mm. really... Because I think if we can imagine it, we can find source there. Mm. Or we can find inspiration there. Or we can we can we can go there and we can we can create out of love something there. And there's there's a there's a young woman in that I've been relating to in, in the spring and summer whose source of inspiration is DJing. Mm-hmm. And that's where she that's where she takes off from you know and it's been really fun to have conversation with her about that you know so it's like wow <laughs> okay possibilities there's so many there's just so many to think beyond the box of what we what our, our normal experience would be that's why i find myself thinking okay maybe we did have peace in the creation of this planet so if we did then we have the capacity to figure out how to make it healthy. We do. We have that within our capacity. All we have to do is our imaginations and our, what we know about it already, to do the work. You know, it is a little off topic. Not really. About to go teach right after we get to the podcast. I'm teaching a new course this semester, Evolution. And it can tend to be pretty damp. It's, it's a bummer to teach a bunch of 20 year olds about toxic waste and at sick and particularly huge numbers of very poor people being mistreated in this way. Mm-hmm. 
And I try to focus on agency, on our creative power to improve our life in this. Rather than just a litany of disaster, my teaching is always about ways we can make things better. It may never really, you know, reach that sort of nirvana state where every, everything's hunky-dory, but, but we can do way better than we're doing now. We know the, the way, right? This is not foreclosed to us. So I think there's just something, and in my teaching, I do, I do, probably shouldn't tell my boss, spiritual practice. I, I play music at the beginning of every class, music videos that I find inspirational, that I help frame the emotional mood of the students before I launch into the technical stuff. I think there's a lot to what he has just said about our creative power to, as agents in the world, to improve our, and whether that's your urban food with rum of culture and society all around her, or whether it's me on the top, we all kind of have a part to play in a duty of care. Creative thinking it includes, you know, emotions, spirituality, and the mind. It includes all three. So you're very wise to have music and inspiration as part of what's going on there. I really think I really think that that's a good thing to do. Music and inspiration while you study talk quiz. It's a it's a new thing. I applaud you for doing. I really do because I think one of the theories that we had was, oh, if we just know enough we'll be able to figure out the solution. And well, on some technical thing, we need to have technical revelations to be able to figure something out. But what's most important, we talked about this in a few different ways, is what is the experience of really transformation that motivates someone to sustain themselves through the imagining a different future, working to enact that, finding partners in that way journey of motivation and inspiration and partnership isn't fueled by the I need to know all the bad things. It's right. fueled by something sure. and so figuring out how to bring that into our experience, looking, focusing on, you know, you said in your your sharing the other day, Becky, like where we put our energy, you know, that's kind of what flows. I think that's true. Like if you put a lot your energy on thinking about all of the things that are wrong in the world, you could become a great expert in all of the things that are wrong in the world. But if you don't shift to thinking, well, how can I be a part of that turning towards a different way? Well, you're just going to be stuck in that place. I think too, imagining or accepting the fact that we are basically good and made from love. And so we, we have the capacity to be creators in positive ways. And, you know, it's there. Yeah. That is in us. And I think we forget that. I really think we forget that because there's so much we're bombarded. We're bombarded. Every day we're bombarded with what's wrong, what's going wrong. And, you know, we all well, we just need to turn the radio and TV off sometimes and pay attention to what's good. Yeah. And yeah, we need to know what we can improve, we, we do. But we also need to have faith that we have the capacity 
Yes, we have the capacity to make this right. We do. Absolutely, we do. Is, is there a class CSU got that's like a solutions class? There are classes more like, I would say, that I don't think there's a class that's called. Yeah. I think there are, there are classes that are aimed at solving particular things. There's, to my knowledge, not really a sort of overarching. This is a huge problem in my field that a lot of people in the environmental sciences, really their profession is to enumerate problems. Mm -hmm. And I try very hard in my teaching to, I mean, it's, it's my obligation to help students to understand problems. And I don't feel that's ever enough. I think we always have to move towards solving problems. I feel like too much of this discourse tends towards almost the opposite of what he said. That she said, we, she's using it in a huge way, that word, are basically good. But the, the converse, a lot of times people wind up with the sense that we are basically bad. And that the solution is for people to drop and blow away or, or to die or to go extinct. This, this feels like a terribly troubling thing to me. I, I, my profession, I meet generations of 19-year-olds. Too many of them have this sort of existential guilt about who Despair. we are. And I, I, I want us to, to help those those young people mm -hmm. to find a way towards a faith in their nature. Mm -hmm. You see, and, and I spoke about this on Sunday, that for me, letting go of the religious belief that we created, you know, we're, con we're connected somehow to sin. Yeah. And then that just, it just, yeah, I just, I just have to reject that totally. It's just, you, it's just a false line. We, we may be off the topic here, but, but the, you know, teaching climate change, very, very often I encounter the framing of stint and punishment. So in, in lefty political orientation, pe people will tell you that we have, have harmed the earth and the earth is punishing us by, you know, big storms and fire and Brimstone for God's sake. And wow, how did, how did lefty political movements start adopting the conceptual framework of, you know, medieval Catholicism? What the heck? We, we got to get over that. We got to figure out how to help people to be on the side of love See, rather than, yeah. than the side of guilt and shame. That's when I say that we have forgotten who we are. That's what I'm talking about. We have forgotten that we are beings, that we are beings that are made from love, not sin, that we were created out of love. And I, and, and for me, the, the, the religious dogma has, has really done a good job of brainwashing us as a species. And I just really think really, you know, our job in our spiritual job is to really help us to remember that we are love and we have the capacity to create out of love and be 
remember who we are. That yes, we are good. And we we can make those choices. Well, and what does it mean to be good and also hard? That that's a whole other topic. It's also something that we really struggle with is how how do we reconcile the idea that goodness and causing harm are not polar opposite? That even even good people even good people harm. Yeah. And what does it mean to have compassion? For ourselves, for other people, for the decisions, the past climate decisions, the past, you know, we, we thought we were doing a lot of good many different times. And then two decades, three decades, 10 decades later, we're like, oh, oops, we, oops, we really weren't. Yeah, that's where that word learning how to forgive ourselves is it's huge. And that's you know, when, when we're talking forgiveness, forgiving ourselves is the main piece there. And that's it's huge and it doesn't mean there isn't accountability necessary right that's right but that's right still if we want if we're going to stop even ability to think about things or have the conversations or work towards solutions because we're stuck in shame and guilt and that lack of forgiveness and that doesn't, doesn't serve us it doesn't serve no. greater us it doesn't you're absolutely right well we could talk forever thanks scott becky for being in this conversation with me thank you, thank you. Well, I so loved being in that conversation with Becky and Scott and this whole series on God and the different ways that we think about it, experience it, play with it. We're going to be taking a break next week. You'll hear an episode from our archives before we get back to our new series, which is entitled The Tolerance Trap. We're going to be exploring the limits of tolerance, democracy, and how fragility can, well, flare when we talk about centering those who haven't been centered and decentering those who have it's going to be a great series it's going to really kick us off into this fall which has been so dominated by um, forces that want to tell us that their rights are being impacted when we center those who haven't been centered as always we so appreciate all of you who are listening we have some great plans in store for this podcast and always love to hear from you you can reach out to email us at deeperpod at foothillsu.org. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Take care. Until next time. <laughs>